I, uh, we don't have what I would call original illustrious history today. I think we have a, a, a good history, but it's spare. We haven't traveled the world together, no. anything like that, right? Um, but if I may, and this is a little presumptuous, Krishna Chetra Swami is perhaps the best example I can think of uh, of a new generation of scholar practitioners. You know, up until I would venture to say maybe even as recently as 15 years ago, there really wasn't any place in the academy for educators who practiced what they were teaching, particularly in the religions department. Because the thinking was, well, this is your thing. How are you going to avoid trying to proselytize your students? So there was very little um, patience for the scholar practitioners. Um, then somehow, perhaps because there were enough scholar practitioners in the field, it became clear that um, someone who was actually living what he or she teaches may even be in a better position to talk about because they know it from the inside. So as long as certain protocols are respected, and I remember at Hofstra having to memorize those, oh. you, you can say this, but you better not say that, sort of thing. <laughs> um, then it, was, uh, it became acceptable to introduce the praxis as well as the theology. And, uh, and that was a turning point, I think. And the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, which was started how many years ago now? Uh, 20, 23, about 25 years ago. Okay, 25 years ago. Is perhaps uh, the best example of an educational um, agency that brings scholar practitioners into the mainstream of their arena. Um, people's impressions of India, and for that matter, a subject such as the one that we're going to be discussing this evening, were influenced for the past 300 years by British historians, missionaries, <clears throat> um, executives working for the British East India companies. And the image that came out of that earlier period was one of Hinduism as the most degraded form of culture and religion imaginable. It was everything that the Christian world most objected to. Um, yeah, that's a whole other subject that we can discuss sometime, why that reputation developed. Uh, but then with this 
recent, one might say, reformation of image that's taken place in large measure thanks to the efforts of people like Shonak Rishi and yourself at the Oxford Center. Um, concepts that were frowned upon as somehow backward or the vestige of some earlier, less civilized period of Indian history have been given a new life. So I am delighted to have as our guest this evening, Krishna Chetra Swami. Would you please join me in thanking him for being with us this evening? <laughs> um, when, uh, when you first uh, brought your latest book, this is your latest book? Yes. To, to my attention. Um, and the title for Actually, those it's who, not the latest one. It's not the latest one. But it's the latest academic book. Latest academic. The latest one is this one. Ah, yes. <laughs> Krishna's wonderful form. Well, this one from Palgrave Macmillan is titled Cow Care in Hindu Animal Ethics. And that's kind of, it's become a cliche, hasn't it? When, when people think about India or they think about Hinduism or they think about, you know, that whole Eastern world, it's... They think about holy cow. Holy cow. It's holy cow. <laughs> What's with the cow, right? And I remember um, being with uh, our teacher, Prabhupada, uh, in 1975, I guess it was, when he went to visit Cardinal Danielu. Yes, you were translating. In Paris. I've seen that video. And, um, Cardinal Danielu made the rather pithy comment uh, in his broken English. He says, I don't understand you Hindus. You would rather see your children starve than to kill the sacred cow. I don't understand. <laughs> so, so um, very exciting that we have you here to straighten us out on this whole cow thing. What is the cow <laughs> thing? Cow thing. <laughs> well, first What's with the cows. <laughs> first, I want to say thank you for having me here. It's uh, my pleasure. It's a pleasure for me. <laughs> and second is you may be interested to know that the expression in English, "Holy cow!" I I researched this. Oh, okay. It comes from baseball. Yes. Baseball announcer. Yes. Um, the, what was his name? That great baseball. Phil Rizzuto. Phil Rizzuto. Holy cow! <laughs> and you know why that was? Why he said that? I do not know why Phil Rizzuto said "holy cow." Because it was a strict rule that you couldn't use any swear words. Oh, of course not. Baseball is a family sport. Yeah. Right. It was strict, and so Pretty holy good. cow was holy the cow. the substitution for, Excellent. I don't know what. Now we know. You see, you come here and you learn the most important <laughs> elements of Eastern philosophy. Um, yeah, so what's with the cow? What's with the cow? Why don't you give us a little primer? Well, that's kind of... Okay, what? That's what you said last week. What's with the cow? What's with the cow? We're going to have a whole class on it. <laughs> So start us, start, us off, start us off with a little background. Well, let me tell you the story of how the book came about. Um, in Oxford, we have, as you said, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. It so happens there's also several other 
institutes, research institute centers in Oxford, and one of them is the Oxford Center for Animal Ethics. And this was started up more recently than our center uh, by a wonderful, wonderful man, Andrew Lindsay, uh, who is a retired professor of Oxford, who is uh, super dedicated to the subject of uh, animal ethics from especially a Christian perspective, himself being um, uh, a vicar of the what do you call it, the Anglican Church. And um, they, he invited, he said, can somebody from your center come and give us a talk about Hinduism and animal ethics? So the invitation sort of got passed from one desk to another at our center, and it kind of ended on my desk. And I thought, gosh, that can be an interesting topic. So I went and gave a little talk, and then they invited me again for another talk and another, and then he started saying, why don't you write a book about this? And he said, I'm the editor of a book series on animal ethics. And he asked me that once, he asked me twice, he asked me three times. The third time he said, I want you to write this book because you're a practitioner. And that's when I thought, okay, I think I have to do something. What if I asked him, what if I would focus on cows? Because this was the question in my mind. What's the cow thing? <laughs> you know, our teacher, Swami Prabhupada, was super into cows. And not only in India, and this is something... Maybe I'll be jumping around to say this, but um, all the sort of big voices in what's called go-raksha in Sanskrit, protection of cows, or go-seva, service to cows, they're all, they only talk about India. They only talk about Indian cows. And they, some of them go so far as to say, as far as we're concerned, your Western cows are not really cows. What are they? Whatever they are, they're not cows, that's what they say. So some are like that, but this is very distinctive of Srila Prabhupada. He wanted cow protection to go on worldwide just as he wanted the whole mission to go on worldwide. And he never once said, you know, that the Indian cows are the only real cows. Uh, he never said that. So what's with the cow? Well, yeah, so I asked him, what if I focus on cows? He said, great, go for it. So that's what I did. Would you mind closing the door? Thank you. So I thought, okay, there's been some writing about cows by 
Krishna devotees, um, but we need we need to write we need to get something which is a little more substantial in terms of something that uh, yeah an academic audience will take seriously. Now, while I was doing this research of this book, at the same time I was very conscious of the fact that the vegan, or do we say vegan here, vegan, vegan movement, the vegan movement has kind of become very prominent. And what is vegan? Vegan means no dairy, which is uh, not what you'll find anyone who talks about what's with cows. (laughs) You'll find none of them saying that. Uh, And so I realized I'm going to have to address this also in the book. But it got me also thinking, is what we claim, we means devotees of Krishna, is what we claim to be care of cows, and I preferred this expression, cow care, to cow protection, um, are we really... Is it really caring for cows? Um, And what does that mean, to care for cows? And why cows? (laughs) Why indeed? There's a a verse in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 5. Krishna is speaking to Arjuna. He's saying, in Sanskrit... Vidya vinaya sampanne brahmane gavihastini shunichaiva shvapakecha pandita samadarshina. That those, uh, there are persons who have a way of perceiving such that. Um, they see something in common amongst all different forms of life. And examples are given in this verse. Um, A learned and gentle Brahmin, which means like a priest, Uh, uh, a cow, Um, an elephant, Hastini, (laughs) Shuni, a dog, uh, shvapaka means literally a dog cooker, someone who cooks dog meat, which in traditional Indian culture they're considered very degraded, almost not quite human uh, people. So someone who sees uh, samadarshi, who sees them all equally, that person is considered learning, is considered pundit. So again, the question becomes, so what's with cows? Why cows? And here I think um, Mahatma Gandhi makes a nice point. Gandhi was, he became famous for promoting ahimsa, but mainly in the political sphere. Uh, What most, most people, are not aware of is how much he was concerned also about animals and specifically cows. And again, why cows? Well, 
the way he put it is that through the care of cows, human beings come to understand, I'm not getting the quote exactly right, but they come to understand their proper relation with all other beings. Cows have a function in relation to humans <laughs> where, in a, in a sense, through cows and taking care of cows, um, the, the whole idea of how we belong in this universe becomes clear. What are we doing on this planet? What are we doing in this universe? What Gandhi, in effect, is saying is, take care of some cows and then you'll know. <laughs> but again, why cows? Well, we can speak about the different products of the cows. And of course, uh, this, the beginning of that, one thinks immediately of female cows, they're giving milk and they're giving uh, all the other uh, dairy products. In India, traditionally, it was not so much the milk. It was more what you can do with milk. Uh, one practical reason being that uh, there was no refrigeration. So what do you do with milk? You have to boil it down, you have to make butter, you have to, and then, and finally you make ghee or clarified butter, because you can keep clarified butter. And there's something else you can do with, you can cook with clarified butter. And there's something else, and that is, it has a very important ritual purpose. Uh, it's ghee, which is fed into the fire, agni, and that is Again, a, making a cosmic connection. So Krishna says also in the Gita, evam pravartitam chakram nanavartayatihaya agayur indriya ramo mogam partasa jivati. Basically, if we don't take part in what he calls the, the, the chakra, the, the cycle of yagya, sacrifice, which is the, the, the system by which we connect in our proper place in the universe to make our lives meaningful and to balance everything. If you don't do that, Krishna says, mogam part, mogam, your life is wasted. <laughs> He's pretty strong on that point. <laughs> so ghee is, it goes into the fire. Swaha, swaha, with mantras and other ingredients. And where do we get the ghee from? We get from the cows. And then the other, what do we do with the bulls? The bulls give traction. Um, you want to plow a field because you want to grow something, because you want to eat something, uh, you have to plow. And how are you going to plow by yourself? You have oxen. 
that's a little controversial, even within the Vedic literature. Do you um, castrate or not? There's some say yes, some texts say yes, and some say no. Do you castrate the bull? Um, I, yeah, I tried to get to the bottom of that, but that's as far as I got different opinions for that. Um, okay, so dairy products and, um, and traction are two, what I call in the book, tangible products. But there are, uh, uh, arguably, there are intangible products. And, and the one which I mentioned from Gandhi I think is the sort of the fundamental intangible that by engaging with cows with the idea of not um, exploiting the cows and therefore not killing the cows, then we understand who we are, what we are in relation to uh, the cosmos. And that means it puts us into right relation with everything in terms of economics. Um, in going back to the earliest uh, texts, the Veda, the Rig Veda, we understand it's very clear that um, someone was well off <laughs> if they had cows. A person who had cows was, was um, doing well economically. It wasn't paper money. <laughs> it wasn't plastic. <laughs> it was, uh, was having cows. Uh, and in general, uh, in terms of uh, intangibles, a sense of well-being, there are reports of uh, people also uh, recovering health by engaging in different ways with cows or cow products. A lot of claims are made about the values of cow dung and cow urine. Um, I make it clear in the book that these, um, there are references to this, but um, in terms of modern sort of double-blind research on these sorts of things, we don't really have much of that. Uh, so I'm a little cautious on such points. But you do get stories, people in India, uh, about sort of miracle cures from uh, consuming or in some way uh, taking products of cows. So that's a bit about, yeah, why cows. Thank you. That was, uh, that was good. Can we stick for a moment with the notion of a connection somehow between the care of cows and uh, a discovering of our relationship with the cosmos? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that I find fascinating. Is it, um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? I mean, how, how do those two things work together? I think one, one thing about it is... Um, cows don't move very fast, generally. <laughs> uh, 
although they can move pretty fast when you um, when you see every year in uh, Bhaktivedanta Manor um, and also at um, the farm in Hungary every year uh, in the beginning of spring they do a little festival they all go to the barn and they let the cows out of the barn and the cows run and they gallop and they jump they're so happy finally they can go out you know after months being inside the barn but generally they're pretty slow um and I think, I think this is one uh, principle of cows and taking care of cows. It's, um, it's about slowing down. It's about slowing down and, and it's about rhythms. Something I learned uh, from interviewing people who take care of cows in India is how, especially India, is how regulated cows are. Cows have very routine ways of doing things. Um, It's not just that they know what time is milking time. Uh, In fact, in Belgium, where we have uh, this very nice uh, small castle called Radhadesh. They have, I think, five cows there. And at least for some time, they had a, a program that they would bring the cows on every Sunday. During the Sunday program, they would bring them up from the cow shed. They would bring them up uh, to where the people are where they come uh, entering into the, the, the castle and so on. And they found, please come, welcome. Um, after, I don't know how many weeks they would do that, the cows would come on their own after, after they knew when it was Sunday. They didn't have to tell them or take them up. They were, I don't know, they were looking at their calendars. Or yeah. that. They said, oh, it's, come on, guys, it's Sunday, let's go up. <clears throat> Maybe they were looking forward. They probably got special treats, I don't know. But there, there's, there's a sense of rhythm which comes, I think, uh, specifically with the care of the cows. And there's a pace, and it's a slower pace. And I think that is, uh, is, is significant in terms of connecting. You know, we talk about connecting, reconnecting with nature and so on. Um, a lot of that talk is, you know, maybe kind of sentimental. You know? Maybe know what we're talking about so much. <laughs> especially if we're living in the city all the time. Um, yeah, so that, so that um, there's also the commitment. 
the commitment required, I met uh, one uh, Krishna devotee in, uh, from Ireland who told me he had been, he and his wife had decided they're going to take care of some cows. They had a bit of land, so they had some cows. And after some years, the cows were getting older, and then they were getting older, and then eventually, one after another, they all died, naturally. And two things he said. One is, when they were really getting older, he said he felt like they were, they were like sages. They would just, you know, just be sitting there, um, just being there. There, were, there was a presence to them. Uh, and he said this was very powerful. But he said then they, they didn't replace any of them. They didn't, uh, they just let them die off. Why? Because he said, we don't know how long we're going to live. So we don't want to, we can't commit ourselves. We don't have any children. So we cannot commit ourselves to... Um, to take care of cows for their entire life because um, average life of a cow is, it depends on the breed, but, you know, maybe 18 or 20 years. So there's a commitment there. So you've been giving us, a, a, I think, a very practical um, uh, hoofs on the ground <laughs> a view of, of cow care and some of the benefits. Um, generally, people living in a city like New York don't have an opportunity to take care of cows. Right. Um, but I think we can appreciate, in the abstract sense, your description of um, the slower pace, the, I guess, a reminder really of uh, what life could be um, the idea of connecting with the cosmos somehow through the example of the cow I find absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. um, there was um, you know the, the, the discussion with you this evening comes right in the midst of these terrible reports from Israel yeah. and uh, it's kind of hard to avoid raising the issue uh, even though it's not a direct connection with, with the subject matter this evening. And I'm wondering if in your reflecting on what's been happening, uh, you've found some points of tangency between your research into cow care uh, and human care. I mean, the, the yeah. thing that I guess, uh, puts me into the deepest part of my depression over yeah. these reports coming out of, out of Israel yeah. is the utter lack of compassion, the utter lack of any sense of empathy that by my actions I am causing uh, such extreme pain and suffering to innocent people, children, old people, uh, families, uh, young people 
uh, at a club uh, dancing and celebrating life. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet um, the, the extent of it is absolutely breathtaking. It's not just one or two. This this clearly planned out systematic slaughter uh, of of innocent people, yeah. and the, you know the, the 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 gyroscope of humanity seems to have just gone so far so far off track. Mm. And um, is there is there? I mean, I don't know how long it took you to do the research and writing on, on this book. Well, the publisher gave me t two years. <laughs> they said, I asked for three years. I said, we only do contracts for two years. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was <laughs> so a crash. It was a, a, crash it was a rush job. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to say, I felt like I'm just scratching the surface. Okay. Uh, so much more could be researched. Yeah. Uh, can, can you help us, though, with... You know, I'm sure everyone here feels the same kind of despair that I do to some extent. Um, and I was very curious to know whether you've found some philosophic balance, uh, some reminder perhaps from your research of, uh, that might lend some insight into how it's possible. How, how have we gone so far astray? Yeah, I think um, there's this quote, I'm sure you know, and I don't know if it's really from Leo Tolstoy. They say it's Tolstoy said, that as long as there are slaughterhouses, there will be battlefields. It works kind of better in German language. Uh, so long as Schlachthäuser gibt, so long as it is auch Schlachtfelder geben. Um, Schlachthaus, Schlachtfeld. Um, but uh, specifically with cows, you can find this very quickly, these um, statistics on the internet, um, how many land animals are killed for food. Um, I mean, the numbers animals. are staggering, aren't they? Yeah, so with cows, it comes to Roughly 34,000 per hour. 34,000 cows slaughtered every hour. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it comes to uh, 300 million per year. Yeah. 300, 300 million. Yeah, so that's just cows. The number of, you know, chickens and everything else is much higher numbers. Uh, I don't know the numbers, but it's it's billions of land animals. Um, some estimate 70, 80 billion land animals per year. And that's just land animals. That's not including uh, all, all the aquatics. Yeah. So numbers there's sad, something right? about, to me, it just feels so obvious <laughs> that, as you said, that we, you know, the gyroscope has gone off. Where is the compassion? To me, it's just so obvious that it's because we have made completely automated mm. and completely um, 
she, uh, hidden the process of animal killing such that you don't see it. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think, that the amount of, uh, of meat that's eaten, I'm sure it could be uh, traced in relation to time and population and percentages and so on, uh, how much it, it has gone up. And I remember also, um, I learned this in a course at the university on modern, modern history, modern intellectual history of this kind of... Um, about the, the Holocaust was a process, it was an automation process of killing people, you know. And um, I think there's a connection to the automation process of killing animals in slaughterhouses. And incidentally, um, Henry Ford himself said, where did he learn uh, to, to do uh, the production line for producing cars? He learned it from the Chicago's um, meatpacking industry. So, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> what are these connections? Um, studies are done about uh, how someone who is cruel to animals is likely to also be, uh, you know, psych psychopathological in relation to humans. Um, but to me, that it's a kind of um, self-evident thing, isn't it? That we're just absolutely unnecessarily, we're just sawing off the limb that we're sitting on, isn't it? There have been some extraordinary studies and documentary films uh, uh, recently on this subject. Uh, one comment uh, in a film that I saw uh, stuck with me that... Um, People will get violent to protect their pet. Yeah. If anyone <laughs> dares approach their dog or cat, yeah. they'll do whatever is necessary to protect their pet. Yeah. And yet they have, seem to have no problem um, eating any number of other dead animals. Yeah. It's a form of cognitive dissonance. Yes, this, this sense of disassociation from what's going on. With yeah. your pet, you have a relationship. Right. Your pet has a name. Your yeah. pet has habits that you're familiar with. Right. You don't know the cow that your hamburger has come from or right. the chicken who's provided you with your dinner. Yeah. There's no relationship there. Right. So uh, that detachment from... The natural world seems to be at the root of a lot of our, uh, a lot of our dysfunction. Yeah, there's a detachment from the natural world, and there's a detachment from the food we eat. In that sense, that if it's meat, you haven't seen how how it came, how it was killed, how it was packaged, and so on. Right. I wonder how many people would still be meat eaters if you told them, well, here's the knife, 
Yeah. Go kill what you're going to eat. Yeah. If they actually do what was involved. There, there was a, there was this book. Uh, what was the title? Uh, it was a bestseller in America, um, and I'm forgetting the author's name now too. But he, he explored uh, the process of four types of meals, and one of them was going out and shooting it himself, hunting, and also gathering. And he learned from a friend how to go out and shoot a boar, and, you know, and very interesting. And then he also uh, spent time on a farm where uh, they did the slaughter of the chickens and they had him do it himself. And um, it, the conclusion of his book is not, therefore, I'm not going to eat meat. But it was, it, it made him very thoughtful about it. And I think it made him understand, you know, there's something serious going on here. <laughs> this isn't new, is it? I mean, we, you can trace the roots of this kind of um, numbing of our sense of ourselves and our relationship with nature back to enlightenment um, mm -hmm. philosophies and the Industrial Revolution and uh, mass production of food, which really came online during World War II. Right. It was to feed the troops overseas. And then right. when the war ended, here were all of these industries yeah. capable of producing all of this food. Yeah. Uh, well, you don't want to throw that away, uh, put it to some use. And there's a baby boom going on. Right. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> uh, and a need for proteins. But, but speaking of, uh, you mentioned the enlightenment, of course, Prior to that was René Descartes saying um, animal is basically a machine and if it screams, um, that's not because of pain. It's just a mechanical reaction. So that idea became also very, very influential. Right. There's that a famous painting. You know that painting of... Uh, they put a bird into a glass thing and pumped the air out. Famous, a very moving painting where people are looking and they're horrified by what this, this guy is doing. But why he's doing it, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> well, that, uh, that, that sense of detachment has just grown uh, with the suggestion that life itself really is nothing more than an interaction of material elements and forces. Yeah. There's, uh, there's nothing sacred about it. So yeah. uh, why be squeamish about killing it and eating it? Right. Put it to some use. Right. We won't kill our dog or our cat. We'll do anything to protect that. But, yeah. but everything else is literally fair game. Yes. Uh, I'm going to open this up for some uh, questions from I could you also all. read maybe something on a brighter side. I have sure. a couple of uh, oh, you know what I passages in there I wanted to from read that, the uh, Shastra, which are kind of fun. Please, please do, but I, before you do that, I want to read that wonderful endorsement that you showed me. Okay. Which is here at the beginning of the book, yes? Yes, here it is. A thoroughly researched and most timely book analyzing the placement of the cow throughout Hindu culture and its potential role in human well-being 
more broadly. While the growing Western animal rights movement is primarily based in human-centric concerns and the protection of animals objectified and valued in terms of benefits to human health, diet, ecology, and environment, Valpe introduces us to the notion of the cow as subject and as citizen in its own right. What a wonder, wonderful phrase that is, <laughs> animal as citizen. Using traditional as well as modern theoretical frames of references, Valpe leads us to the inexorable conclusion that the welfare of human civilization and cow protection are inextricably linked. Well said. Very well said. You wanted to read a passage? Yeah, some fun, pa- a couple of fun passages. We're up for fun, I think, right about now. <laughs> after all this grim, uh, all these grim, grim and, things. And after that, uh, get your questions ready because we're going to open this up to you guys. <laughs> so my first chapter is called "The Release of Cosmic Cows," because. Um, I want to go back to the beginnings, and uh, this is alludes to something in the Rig Veda. Oh, you really marked this book up, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I did damage <laughs> to your book there. No. <laughs> uh, hold on a minute. Maybe we should take a question while we... Well, let's start with a question while you're looking. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. It almost sounded like you were making a direct correlation a human kills a cow and then he gets a reaction. A human is responsible by buying meat, ordering it in a restaurant. He get, that human has some responsibility for the slaughter of that animal. And so he's gonna get a reaction. So the numbers of animals that you mention that are being slaughtered on Earth is far greater than the entire human population. So when do all these humans get these reactions? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more of a rhetorical question than a question that well, I can answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can certainly see a cumulative effect going on. Yeah, that would be like... There's so many people that are not yet affected in a war. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that's coming in future births in, for those who believe in that? What are we actually saying here? It seems to be that that, um, as as you are familiar with the Bhagavata Purana, the Srimad Bhagavatam, um, Narada, sage Narada, warns this king, his name is Prachinabarhi, who is thinking himself actually to be quite religious. Uh, because he is uh, sacrificing animals following some prescriptions that are there, because there will always be people who will insist on eating meat. Therefore, there are prescriptions how to do it, um, where you actually see the animal killed. It's not hidden in a slaughterhouse. So Narada tells his king, you're slaughtering all these animals and they're waiting for you. 
after this life. And they are going to do to you what you have done to them. Wow. Can I just clarify? <laughs> yeah. You're saying, or asking us to consider, that every single human that eats meat or buys meat or orders it in a restaurant, those animals in their future lives are waiting for that specific soul to get into a body that he can do that to that soul. I won't say that definitely is the case. For but one thing, like, for one thing, <laughs> There's like endless births are being slaughtered just to make up for how many times a person ate meat. Yeah, for one thing, it's there's there's also there's okay there's how to put it. There's somebody who knows what they're doing, and there are those who don't know what they're doing. Is the punishment the same? Well, we we do hear that law of nature doesn't consider. Prabhupada gives the example of the child and the fire. Fire burns, doesn't matter. The child is innocent. Still, I have a sense that it's, it's complicated and that uh, persons who are really ignorant of the consequences may not necessarily be subject uh, implicated in the same way as some of those. I think one thing we can say, I mean, some of this particular part of our discussion is predicated on accepting uh, that there's this kind of karmic background architecture to the universe, which not everyone right. will necessarily agree. I think, however, it can be uh, uh, agreed that this slaughter creates an atmosphere of death yeah. An atmosphere of cruelty. Yeah. And that the, the, when we become inured to that, when we become too comfortable with causing pain, with slaughter, with uh, uh, death as an everyday event, right. that wears away at human character, that wears away at the fabric of society. Exactly. Yeah. So... Okay, uh, other questions? Yes. Um, so, I don't know if you remember me, but I met you before COVID started. But now, I mean, one thing about like with Israel or Ukraine, but then with the COVIDs and with the climate change, I have a two part question for you. One part is that how important do you think it is to, for each devotee, or maybe even a regular person, to be practicing or preaching cow protection or vegetarianism? during this time when we have widespread disease and the climate change and the violence and whatever else is actually also happening to the earth and the land that we don't know about or in the oceans that we don't see, how crucial do you think that is now in 2023? And the other part of it is that I think that you work with somebody that's dealing with climate change. So I do also, and right now we just had a bunch of events going on in the last few weeks, but to me, I feel like they're all hypocrites because they're eating meat and talk about climate change, so they're defeating their whole agenda. So I want to know how you or other people, how you approach being a speaker in, let's say, being a representative of the Hurricanes or whatever, when you have to speak in a group yeah. to talk about these people. They have a lot of theories, they have a lot of books, 
They're making a lot of things, but they're actually going against the, in the worst way by eating meat. So how do you deal with that? So that's what we're on, like how to get more people involved, how aggressive should each devotee be, how, what do you think, and also how to confront the obvious hypocrites in, in things yeah. like climate change, or even in healthcare, yeah. like doctors and things like that. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> what I would like to... My, my perspective is um, we have to think... Of course, we want to think immediate. We want to think there's urgency. And at the same time, I think we need to look at a trajectory of a bit longer term. So my own my own kind of work, writing a book like this, is not a kind of a book that most people are going to read. It's kind of pitched more toward uh, um, academic audience. But what I'm hoping for is it could have a kind of a trickle-down effect, we say, that people will start to, from, from a, the more intellectually oriented people, they will be starting to say yes, Actually, there's something to this. There's something reasonable. Here is a, a presentation of a complete alternative. Because I think that's what we're talking about here. Boy, I'm not used to this. <laughs> oh, this is New York. This yeah. Is, this is uh, just, it's not, just another Tuesday in New York. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not used to this. I just I just came from the country in Poland, and literally the country. There's just nothing. <laughs> anyway, so I think what I'm trying to do is say, let's consider the whole picture of what would be um, a reasonable way of living for human beings, and rather than try to invent something new. Maybe we can learn something from um, ancient cultures. And why not go all the way back to ancient India? Now, having said that, as I mentioned, this is kind of just scratching the surface because at some point the question has to be raised, all right, but how do you do it really to make it work economically? And that's something that takes, to, to really work that out, it, I think needs a lot of research. Even though it was just done in the past, now we have to you know, get um, experts in, I don't know what it's called, environmental economics and sustainability right. economics yeah, and absolutely. experts of all kinds yeah. in, in teams who run experiments over 20 years mm -hmm. or, or 50 years long-term yeah. to really see how can we make this work. I think it's fascinating that setting aside, you know, global karmic reaction to animal slaughter and, and uh, notions along those lines, that we're being compelled to look at um, non-animal based diets yeah. by force of circumstance. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the environment climatically, uh, yeah. 
uh, agriculturally, in terms of emissions and so on, is forcing us to review habits that we've been taking for granted for, for so many hundreds of years. Please explain what you just said. How is animal slaughter affecting emissions and affecting carbon and methane emissions? Well, I mean, I can't give you all of the uh, specific numbers, but the methane produced by cows that are force-fed grains and chemically treated foods cumulatively uh, represent as much depletion of the environment and ozone layers as uh, transportation emissions. It's that severe. And, and so it's a complicated issue because it's not just slaughter of animals, but how we feed animals yeah. and how we care for animals. And, and the, so the amount of energy used to raise that many cows that, that Sure. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the documentary, Cow... Cowspiracy. Cowspiracy, yeah, yeah. that's it. Uh, it does a good job of providing some of those Just numbers. Of you're saying that the whole worldwide movement for, for dealing with climate change is somehow missing one of the biggest impacts on climate change? No, it's quite well known. Yes, <coughs> Well, missing it, it seems that they're not acting on it. Do you truly believe that animal slaughterhouses are as worse than cars emissions or natural? Did you have something you wanted to add to that? I'm, I'm very curious about how they miss this. As somebody who I've been teaching vegetarian cooking classes for many years now, I meet a lot of people who who eat meat, they've eaten meat their whole life, their families have eaten meat their whole life. So they're open to the notion of being vegetarian, but um, they're afraid about their health, for example. And some people try, but maybe they don't know how to be healthy vegetarians and how to get the nutrition, so that's what I try to teach. But, but then they're like, I tried it and I failed, I felt horrible. So, how do we make, how do we, like, for some people, it would be a very slow tr transition. Like, we're talking individually, not economically. Mm. Like, how do you advise people who've been eating meat their whole life to suddenly give it up? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not to suddenly give it up, mm -hmm. but to be working in that direction and then take lessons from you. <laughs> Can I tell you a little story? Um, I was teaching a class at Integral Yoga on 12th Street or 13th Street uh, a few years ago. And um, it was about how behavior affects consciousness. And the conversation naturally came around to diet. And uh, vegetarianism naturally came up and there was a lot of support from the 25 or 30 people who were in the room for a vegetarian diet. And then a hand went up in the back. And this was a series. So the person who raised her hand was someone who had come to all five or six of the previous classes. 
And she said, you know, I just have to go on record here as objecting to this. Um, I, I tried to be a vegetarian. You know, I understand why that's considered uh, an important thing, a, a good thing to do, and all the different reasons why humanitarian and health and so on. And I got terribly sick. And my doctor insisted that I stop, that I balance my diet by putting back some animal protein. And I got better right away. And she said, I, I like these classes, but I just have to tell you, I feel terrible. Every time this subject comes up, I'm made to feel like a second-class citizen. And I don't know whether I should even continue to come here. Now, for me, that was a very important lesson. Very important lesson. That I should not be holier than thou in my habits uh, because you don't get it yet. You know, you're not up to the standard just yet. That's the whole backlash. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's your response to her? Well, I said thank you. I said, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we tend to maybe indulge in this mentality that um, there's only one way to live life, you know, and everyone else is wrong. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is that she wasn't objecting to the idea at all. She saw the importance and the value in it. She just felt at this time in my life, I'm not capable of doing that, and I don't want to feel like I'm uh, extraneous to this group, that I'm outside, outside the group. And uh, I think that's, that's pretty important, um, that we learn to accept people for who they are now, not who they might be someday when they wake up and realize that we've had the answer all along, but who they are now. And, and uh, some people need to do things gradually. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong about that. Yes. James, you wanted to say something? Yeah, when I was a teenager, me and my buddies decided that we were going to be hobos and catch the train and go to Chicago. So we actually got on the train, but went the other way. <laughs> Next time over, there was a slaughterhouse. Oh. And they screamed. We'll never forget. And if this was the worst, it wasn't animals processing for food on your table. This was animals being slaughtered for feed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got yeah. screamed. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. Roel Dahl has a short story about a young man whose high school class visits a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. I won't tell you what happens. It's very macabre. That's very Roel Dahl. But um, I think if people actually have that experience of, of visiting a slaughterhouse, mm-hmm. that might be one very uh, effective, compelling reason for yeah. them to consider <laughs> One thing I, I learned also in researching the book was how, and, and this got me very sympathetic to the vegan movement, is that the dairy industry is essentially 
just an extension of the meat industry. You cannot maintain uh, a dairy as it's, you know, as an economic um, project without slaughtering, without selling the cows once they're uh, giving, no longer giving milk or giving less milk. And so they become, they're, of course, they're sold to the slaughterhouse. That's for the uh, female cows. And then, of course, the, um, the males are, are slaughtered pretty much right after birth in general. Um, the milk industry in India is the largest in the world. How it became that uh, was from a clever person in the 1970s who figured out how to get all the local farmers to bring their milk uh, to a central processing place and so on. But the point is that what happens to those cows after they're not giving milk? Off they go. So one attempt at a solution, it's, it's hoping to eventually become a model, uh, is in uh, Great Britain near Leicester. There's a group, um, they have uh, a project called the Ahimsa Dairy Foundation. And the way they work is uh, they have a membership system. You pay 108 pounds to become a member uh, per annum per year. And that, uh, after being a member, you can order milk from cows that are protected for life. And you know that this is protected cow's milk, ahimsa milk. The cost of that milk is going to be around three times what it would cost in the shop. But it's they're fed uh, from grass on the field. They, they have nice pastures. Um, they're taken care of very nicely. And you know that that is first-class milk. So people are paying. They have a waiting list of a thousand people waiting because, you know, they have 15 cows. How many people <laughs> service? <laughs> well, as you can tell, this is a very rich subject. It's one that can be approached from a hundred different angles. Uh, we're, uh, regretfully, our time is limited. The subject is unlimited, but our time is limited. Can I read one yes, paragraph of please. a sweet description? Please do. Uh, this is from Raghunath Das's Raja Vilasa Stava, praise song on the pastimes of Raja, which means the place of Krishna, um, offering an otherworldly vision of Krishna's cows. The hooves of Sri Krishna's Surabi cows are decorated, whoops, I'm missing a D there, I just noticed are decorated with sapphires. Their horns are gold-plated, and their white cheeks have broken the snow-capped mountain peak's pride. 
I pray these Surabi cows, these sacred cows, may protect us in the company of Balaram, Krishna's brother, and his other friends, and his own body, splendidly covered with the dust raised by their hoofs. The prince of Raja, Krishna, daily enjoys a great festival of protecting and milking the cows. With great happiness, he eagerly enjoys pastimes with them in the great forests and on the grand hills and riverbanks of Raja. Let me worship these Surabhi cows. Glory to Padmaganda, the favorite bull of the enemy of Baka, that's Krishna, whose handsome horns are covered with gold and studded with jewels, whose hooves are splendidly decorated with sapphires and whose fine neck bears a swinging garland with reddish flowers. Sometimes Lord Krishna feeds the calves attentively placing small bunches of soft, fresh grass in their mouths. And sometimes he very carefully massages their legs. <laughs> I yearn to one day see these calves of Lord Krishna jumping and frolicking in Vrindavan. <laughs> Thank you for that moving recitation. <laughs> Would you join me, please, and thank you for your time. And I hope that we can get you back again sometime very soon. Okay.